0: If I look a little hunched over, it's because I am. I twisted my back somehow. You know, I do that every once in a while. I don't even have to do anything. It's like, okay, what'd you do? Nothing. (laughs) It'll go away in a day. It always has. So I'm trusting it will this time too. But it's like I need to just get a good night's rest and then it'll be fine. Those muscles will relax or whatever. But anyway, so if I'm looking like this, it's because I am like that. (laughs) Anyway, what's that? (laughs) Ashes and sackcloth? (laughs) It's not quite that bad, (laughs) but I will take intercession. (laughs) Okay, well, we are in 1 Timothy tonight. Thank you, Andrew, for uh, helping me out tonight. Appreciate that very much. Uh, we are looking at 1 Timothy chapter 2, verses 1 through 7. God desires all to be saved, is what I've titled the message here. And uh, let's go ahead and look to the Lord in a word of prayer. Lord, again, we thank you for the privilege to assemble in Jesus' name and to study the Word of God, which is our authority in all matters of faith and practice. So, Lord, uh, bless our time of discussion, study, as we work our way through the text uh, of 1 Timothy 2, 1 through 7 this evening. Thank you for each one that's able to come out. I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, well, you'll note on the overhead, uh, we are in First Timothy, and the theme is church order, and uh, we have worked our way through to uh, the next section. Uh, we were in chapter 1, your commands to Timothy regarding doctrine and practice, now instructions regarding church order, which is a rather <clears throat> prolonged uh, section there. Uh, Paul, on his uh, third missionary journey, uh, planted a church at Ephesus. He stayed there for some time, uh, you know, for, for Paul uh, relatively long. <clears throat> but now it's about uh, 10 years later, and we believe he's been in prison, but he's been released for a little time. He's now on his fourth missionary journey. Him and Timothy are making their way through Asia, they've made their way to Ephesus, and uh, Timothy stays at Ephesus while Paul moves on. Maybe went all the way to Spain. We we don't know for sure. But uh, that's a context here. It's about 10 years after the church has been planted. Uh, There are elders in the church, but there's some concern about some of the teaching that's going on there, as he brought out very clearly in chapter 1. And it seems that uh, the concern is that there are some that are wanting to bring Jewish legalism into the equation. Uh, So they're kind of muddying the waters as far as the gospel of grace. And so, uh, Paul really kind of hammers a number of things. He, he emphasizes sound doctrine. He emphasizes, along with that, proper practice and doctrine and practice go together. And then church order, uh, starting with the fact that we need to have qualified leaders in place, right? And say, well, 10 years in, I think they already know that. Yeah, I think that needs to be re-emphasized when you've got some teaching that's going on that's uh, kind of getting out of line. So, that's, that's the context, the background here. In this context, he emphasizes very strongly the gospel of grace. And uh, you recall back in verse 15, chapter 1, 15, he says, This is a faithful saying and worthy of all acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am chief. And then he goes on to say that he's really uh, the premier example of God saving sinners. Uh, He considers himself to be the worst of the worst. I mean, that's where he put himself. But uh, he says that he is a pattern to those who are going to believe on him for everlasting life, as we saw there in verse 16. This really highlights the gospel of grace. Christ came to save sinners. And you know he's not done with that theme. He's going to march on with that as we go on into chapter 2 now. Okay, let's have somebody read uh, chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. Who wants to read that for us? Chapter 2, 1 through 3. Yeah, Marilyn? Thank you. So, the word, therefore, uh, ties back. He has just said in verse uh, 18 uh, that he he is charging him, uh, Timothy, that is, uh, to wage good warfare. It's a battle. And then he talks about some people here that, uh, you know, in verse uh, 19 and 20, who have made shipwreck of the faith, uh, Hymenaeus and Alexander, whom he has delivered to Satan. Uh, Well, it seems that there's kind of a battle for who's going to teach, who's going to be qualified to teach, uh, some bad teaching. And so he's exhorting Timothy, this is going to be a fight, we don't wrestle with flesh and blood, but there's a battle, and and Satan uses people, and uh, there's a warfare. And so I think when he says, therefore, he's tying back to uh, this exhortation to war and to wage a, a good warfare, as we saw back in verse 18. His concern is the true gospel, and uh, that cannot be negotiated. And uh, so he says, therefore, in light of this charge, I exhort, first of all, that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and giving thanks be made for all men. So the first thing that he urges here, ex- exhort means to urge, to entreat, uh, to plead, to appeal is really the idea. By the way, when it comes to matters of prayer, you really can't force people to pray, can you? Uh, no, You appeal. You appeal to them, and that's what Paul's doing here. He's appealing uh, that prayers be made. I exhort, uh, first of all, which means it's of, of first importance. Uh, this, is, this is primary, uh, the, the place of prayer. And really, I think he's uh, got the whole church in view. Uh, the church is to be a people of prayer, not just Timothy. Uh, so, you know, there's broad application here. I exhort, first of all, The supplications. Uh, What are supplications? What's that? What kind of requests? Yeah, Uh, it's an intense request and and, uh, uh, it's a specific request. Uh, That's kind of the idea of supplications. It's intense and it's specific. Uh, uh, Prayer. So that, that's the idea. The, first of all, supplications. You know, when you've got something, you're really on your heart, and you're pleading to God about it, that's a supplication. Prayers is general. Uh, prayer is talking to God. It's kind of a general catch-all word. Uh, intercessions. Uh, intercessions is when you're praying for someone else, right? You're interceding for them. And uh, so uh, this and, and is very intimate. This word intercession is like when you would commune heart-to-heart. It's when you pour out your heart to God. Yeah. Sure, yeah, I think he's just saying all manner of prayer here. There's a lot of overlap as far as the kind of prayers, yeah, sure. I think his general point is we need to pray, uh, all kinds of prayers, yeah. And then he says, with uh, giving of thanks, giving of thanks be made for all men. Uh, You know, it's kind of like, well, I was with him until he got to the giving thanks for everybody. (laughs) He give thanks for everybody. I mean, it's like, are you kidding me? Especially where he goes with some of the kings and authority. Uh, You know, it's like, uh, am I really giving thanks for that person? Uh, Well, we'll talk about that a little bit. Notice he says, uh, for all men. You know, there's a thing about all people are made in the image of God. All people have value. All people are important. Uh, They all need prayer. They all need prayer. You say, that person, I'll never pray for that person. Well, you maybe need to check your own heart. I mean, uh, they need prayer. And maybe if they're your worst enemy, all the more they need prayer. Um, So uh, he says uh, all these things. Supplications, prayers, intercessions, give me thanks. In reference to all men. Everyone needs prayer. And you know the thing about prayer? Only Christians can pray. Uh, we alone have access to God through the one mediator that he's going to go on to talk about. Unbelievers don't have access. They don't have a high priest. They don't have a prayer. But we do. And so we need to pray for all men, as he says here. Uh, let's start off with our slides here. I got a number of them tonight. But note here, in context, the emphasis is on prayer for the lost. Someone as well said, even those who will not allow you to speak to them about God cannot prevent you from speaking to God about them, right? Uh, What mighty conquests have been won this way? I call prayer the secret weapon. And uh, we've often said that about our kids, you know, well, apply the secret weapon. You know, we keep praying. And so uh, we as a church family are to be praying for all the lost, uh, for all people. Uh, Everybody needs prayer, and that is a a primary uh, duty that we have, a sacred duty, to pray. I know you pray for me. We could sense many of you praying for us the last couple of weeks. You know, in-laws died 17 days apart. It was quite a whirlwind trip, but uh, it was amazing the peace that my wife had. We'd look at each other and say, "Wow, this is just amazing." She felt guilty for having so much peace. I said, "Honey, it's okay." <laughs> that peace that passes understand. All I said, you know, we both agreed it's the grace of God's people praying for us. We, we could sense that uh, everybody needs prayer. And especially as we think about uh, where this goes, that God desires all men to be saved, uh, the lost need prayer. And then it gets more specific here. Uh, By the way, uh, anything else you want to add there before I go into verse two? I don't want to keep going here. I can just keep preaching, but anyway, okay. uh, Verse two, uh, all these things uh, in terms of prayer for kings and all who are in authority. Uh, Kings uh, is the first uh, specific uh, group that he mentions, kings really refers to the, the top leader, you know, the main leader, uh, whoever that might be. In our country, we would say the president's the, the top leader. And, uh, you know, but for kings, uh, those top leaders, and then all who are in authority, the different levels of governing authority, uh, we are to pray for, for them all. They all need our prayers. Now, uh, you know, sometimes uh, Christians get off track a little bit, and it's kind of like their main mission is political activism. Or maybe social activism. Uh, how, how about prayer? I mean, that's where Paul goes here. Uh, he goes to prayer. And you, you do understand who was uh, in, in the, the, main, the main king at this point, right? Or the, the Caesar. Uh, it was Nero. Realize that Nero was on the throne at this time. Nero was not a lovable character. Uh, he was no friend of Christians. He was immoral, vile, hateful as they come. Nero allegedly murdered his two wives, his mother, and his aunt, while also marrying two different men and sleeping with his mother. He mercilessly persecuted the church and, in the end, was responsible for killing the Apostle Paul. Paul did not call for protest. He did not call for a rebel movement. He called for prayer and not for uh, prayer for Nero's death. <laughs> you know, I want to qualify that. He didn't say, Pray that the guy will die. He's an evil guy. He's our enemy. Uh, let's pray for his demise. No. Uh, he didn't say that. Um, it's just interesting to be Nero, as wicked as he was and such a vicious enemy of the early church, he's, he's really indirectly asking for uh, prayer for him at this point. And uh, let's see, I've got a couple other slides here on this. Uh, Donald Guthrie, Christian citizens may in this way influence the course of national affairs, a fact often forgotten except in times of special crisis. Uh, you know, I think about that sometimes. You know, we're a pretty small little group, even as far as, you know, we look at all the people around us. You know, we're not an itty-bitty little church anymore, but we're still, you know, as far as percentages of people in the community, pretty small. But I, I sometimes think, man, the prayers of God's people are perhaps influencing the entire country. Maybe we still have the freedoms that we have today because you're praying, uh, and people like you, not just you, but God's people. Um, so, yeah, uh, John MacArthur says this. If uh, the church today took the time and energy it spends on political maneuvering and lobbying and poured them into intercessory prayer, we might see a profound impact on our nation. Although we may hate the evil world system that is the enemy of God, we are not to see those in it as our personal enemies. They are captives of the real enemy. They are not our enemies, they are our mission field. You know that that changes your perspective a little bit if you see them as your mission field. Uh, we are to reach these people. Uh, they They are not the enemy. Uh, we wrestle not with flesh and blood. like I say, the devil uses these people, but uh, they need they need prayer. and uh, notice uh, he he's saying uh, this, uh, pray, do all these uh, supplications, prayers, intercessions, give me thanks. For those in authority, to what end? That we may lead a quiet and peaceable life in all godliness and and reverence. This is interesting because we often say, well, pray for their salvation. And he will get there, I think, you know, as we move down to verse 4, that's implied. But uh, the specific reason he says to pray for these people here at this point is that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Uh that is, uh, the, I think, as you look at Paul and his mission and his emphasis here, it's related to his gospel mission, the gospel mission of the church. We are really praying for favorable conditions for the spread of the gospel. We are praying for those in authority to that end, that we might continue to have the, the uh, freedoms and uh, the conditions that are favorable for the, for the spread of the gospel. Edmund uh, Hebert says, "Uh, Paul believed that prayer made a definite difference in national affairs and brought about conditions favorable to the furtherance of the gospel. I really think that's the main emphasis. He's not saying, well, just pray that it'll go easy for you so you can just veg. Uh, No, his whole thing is thinking about the the gospel and conditions that are favorable uh, for the spread of the gospel. The idea of quiet is uh, undisturbed, that we might live a life that's undisturbed. You say, well, I thought, you know, persecution causes the spread of the gospel. Maybe we should pray for a little persecution. I I don't see where you see that. I sure don't see it here. I see Paul say, pray that we could continue to live a a quiet and peaceable life. We're just wanting to mind our business as Christians and do God's work here. And, uh, you know, God does use persecution. And uh, if it it comes, okay. Uh, And we know uh, the world will hate us and all of that. But... uh, you know it's it's uh, and we you know the thing about uh, sometimes a uh, quiet and peaceable life like we've had for so many years in our country, sometimes we get kind of lethargic, right? In terms of spreading the gospel, we just kind of sit around waiting for the rapture. <laughs> That's not why we're here. That's not our calling. Uh, the idea of quiet here is undisturbed, outwardly peaceable is is uh, inwardly. Uh, William McDonald says this. Uh, It is for our our own good, the spread of the gospel, that the government should be stable and that the country be preserved from revolution, civil war, turmoil, and anarchy. I know some of these. Well, let's let's you know we all need to congregate to Texas and fight the good fight or something. But really, that's not a good idea. Uh, Let's pray for a peaceable situation uh, that we may lead a quiet and peaceable life. Uh, That's the best case scenario. And uh, we can affect the, the national situation by our prayers. Uh, we need to pray for those kings in authority, those who are in authority. We need to pray for them, that, that God, in spite of themselves, will work to that end uh, f- for our good and for the for the spread of the gospel. Notice uh, he describes it here, uh, quiet and peaceful life in all godliness. Uh, this is uh, in keeping with our godlike calling uh, that we would have... Uh, freedom uh, to live out a a godly life without being molested uh, and reverence, uh, that we would be, uh, you know, uh, able to live out a Christian life of dignity without uh, uh, being harassed. Uh, That's really his prayer request here. I I like that. I like that. Uh, You know, really he's praying praying that we wouldn't be oppressed by the government so that we can continue to do uh, what God has called us to do with freedom. The Word of God would have free course and so forth. Uh, Let's see here. Bible knowledge commentary. Uh, Times of political and social upheaval are excellent times in which to die for Christ, but hard times in which to live for Him. You know, there's truth in that. Uh, I've done some studies on this before. People say, well, you know, the the martyrs, uh, the the blood uh, is the seed of the church or whatever. Yeah, but sometimes it's really tough, too. Uh, and God is sovereign. He works through all kinds of things. But, uh, you know, I'm, I'm with Paul here. Let's pray that we might continue to live a quiet and peaceable life. Uh, I like that concept uh, there. Okay. Um, and then verse 3 says, For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior. You say, well, you sure God wants us to pray that way? Oh, well, Paul said so. Uh, this, is, this is good, this exhortation to pray in this way uh, for those in authority. Uh, this is good is the word actually that could be translated beautiful. This is, this is a beautiful way to pray. And it's acceptable. It's pleasing to God. It's in keeping with what God desires. Uh, in the sight of God our Savior. Now this phrase, God our Savior, is found six times in the pastoral epistles. Uh, it's uh, indicative of the nature of our God to, to, to save Literally, this is our, our Savior, God, referring to his character. Uh, you know, there sometimes comes up, are we talking about the Father? Are we talking about the Son here? Uh, the title here principally has God the Father in view, but elsewhere, Paul often refers to Christ as Savior. So depending on the context, the title Savior may interchangeably refer to either the Father or the Son, which is indicative of the fact that both are God. The triune God is a saving God and his saving character is manifest chiefly in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, but it applies to all members of the Trinity. Uh, he is the God who saves. Uh, let's say here, uh, literally our Savior God. Okay, any other thoughts before we go on to the next couple verses here? Anything else? Okay, let's, uh, let's, well, let's just take one verse. This is kind of the key verse here. Let's just take verse four. Uh, who wants to read that? Yeah, Albert. It's amazing. We got such a clear verse and has caused us quite a bit of controversy, even amongst theologians sometimes. It doesn't seem to be that difficult to me, but, uh, you know, I start, <laughs> started to bring in all kinds of things. And, but uh, this is consistent with who he is as God our Savior. I mean, he's a saving God, and, and as a saving God, uh, uh, the Savior who is God, who does He want to save? Well, everybody. He desires all men to be saved. You know, He created all, and He desires all to be saved. This is consistent with who he, this is consistent with the heart of God. You know, John three sixteen, right? Yeah, God so loved the world, the world that He gave His only begotten Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God so loved the world. And so, uh, you know, this is uh, all encompassing, I believe, in terms of God's love. Uh, Isaiah 45, 22. Look to me and be saved. Who? All you ends of the earth. For I am God, there is, there is no other. Uh, 55, 1. Ho! Oh, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. You have no money, come. Buy, eat. Yes, come. Buy uh, wine, milk without money, without price. Really... Describe, descriptive of grace there. Uh, but the invitation is to to come, uh, everyone who thirsts. And the last invitation of the Bible uh, emphasizes that, that same thing. And then here in Ezekiel, uh, where God says, I have no pleasure in the death of the one who dies, says the Lord God, therefore turn and live. You know, he has no pleasure in the death of the wicked. Second Peter 3, The Lord is not slack concerning his promise, as some count slackness, but his long-suffering towards us not willing that any should perish, but that all should come to repentance. Uh, God wants uh, everyone to come to repentance, desires all men uh, to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. A good summary statement by Thomas Constable, Uh, he says, there is nothing in this text or in any other that would limit the truly universal interpretation of all men. God wants everyone to experience eternal salvation. People perish because they do not hear the gospel, or hearing it, they choose to reject it. God has given people freedom to choose to accept or reject the gospel. Uh, I think that's true. You cannot get away from the reality of human responsibility. We'll talk about this a lot in the, next week in the Right Kind of Faith study during Vacation Bible School. But uh, I think if you say God doesn't desire all men to be saved, you end up messing with the very nature of God. It becomes a serious matter. Uh, Who desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth? I love this phrase, uh, the knowledge of the truth. Uh, This is Pauline for descriptive of the content of the gospel and what we need to know, uh, the knowledge of the truth. People have to come to the knowledge of the truth. you say, well, I think they just get saved sitting on a hill somewhere looking into the sky. No, they won't. Uh, They need to hear the gospel. Uh, That's what Paul says in Romans 10. How how will they believe unless a preacher goes and tells them? Uh, They they need to know the truth. They need the knowledge of the truth. And so this is necessary in order to be saved. You must have some knowledge. Uh, Well, how are they going to get that knowledge? Well, faith comes by hearing, hearing by the Word. Somehow they need to come in contact with the Word. Uh, Somebody needs to share the Word with them. They need to have contact with the Word, with the truth, Uh, the knowledge of the truth. Uh, let's see here. 1 Timothy 2. Uh, in humility, correcting those who are in opposition. If God perhaps will grant them repentance, so that they may know the truth. And then in 3.7, always learning, never able to come to the knowledge of the truth. Like I say, this is pretty much Pauline uh, language. And, uh, so, and by the way, the word knowledge here is in, in the intensive way of talking about knowledge. It literally means full knowledge. Uh, God desires uh, people to be saved, but the rest of the thought is they must come to the knowledge of the truth in order to be saved. And that's where you come in, right? You're praying and you're sharing, right? Hopefully we are. Let me just real quickly run through uh, what I emphasize as four points as far as I emphasize everywhere in all my literature as far as what people need to know in order to be saved. Uh, the knowledge of sin, uh, Romans 3, we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty. Guilty, guilty, you know the Ten Commandments? Guilty, uh, guilty, 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 all the way through. Uh, you know, have you ever disobeyed your parents? Have you ever had a lustful thought? Have you, uh, you know, on and on. Uh, Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in sight. For by the law is what? Knowledge. Knowledge of what? Sin. That's why we use the law, to point, people, to point out to people, you're, you're a sinner. Of course, we don't want to use that language after we had a complaint last week, but anyway, just kidding. Uh, so that's uh, point number one. Uh, knowledge of the truth, start with the knowledge of sin. You, you don't know about sin, you don't know that you need a Savior. The only reason you need a Savior is because you're a sinner. So we start there. And then uh, the second thing is the knowledge of Christ as Lord. Really big thing in my theology. It should be in everybody's. Uh, Paul is clearly talking about the gospel in 2 Corinthians 4. If our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing, whose minds the God of this age is blinded, who do not believe. There is their problem. Lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. We do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus the Lord, and ourselves your bondservants for Jesus' sake. For it is God who commanded light to shine out of darkness, who has shown in our hearts to give the light of what? The knowledge of the glory of God. And where do we find it? In the face of Jesus Christ. Uh, people need to come to the knowledge of the glory of God all the way through here. The image of God, uh, the glory of Christ, which is the image of God, uh, Christ Jesus the Lord. All the way through that is the emphasis, knowledge of Christ as Lord. So they need to know who Jesus is. Uh, it's non-negotiable. You say, well, I think they can get saved without knowing... No, they can't. They have to know about who Jesus is, and they have to personally apply it. Uh, This is where we are tonight. Uh, Knowledge of Christ as Savior desires all men to be saved, to come to the knowledge of the truth. One God, one mediator, who gave himself a ransom for all. uh, Really, a whole emphasis there is is Savior. And then, uh, finally here, uh, the knowledge of righteousness uh, is by believing. Uh, this is a problem with the Jews. Brother, my heart's desire and prayer to God for Israel is that they may be saved. What's their problem? Well, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. Uh, they, they don't understand. And, and what don't they understand? Well, he says, they being ignorant of God's righteousness, how righteous God is, and seeking to establish their own righteousness, uh, thinking too high of themselves to take it, acquire it, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. <clears throat> how do you have it? Well, Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. There's the key. Uh, They were were ignorant. Uh, They have a zeal, but not according to knowledge. They didn't understand. It's not by works. It's by believing. And then finally, I want to throw one more in here. If I want an argument for Paul writing uh, Hebrews. This might be a good one. I'm not saying he did. But uh, accountability for the knowledge of the truth. Hebrews 10, if we sin willfully after we have received the knowledge of the truth. Again, that everywhere else I see in the New Testament is consistent with Pauline language. Uh, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins. Fearful expectation of judgment, fiery indignation which will devour the adversaries. So there's accountability uh, for, hey, the knowledge, you have received the knowledge of the truth. You have to respond to it. You have to receive it. And uh, let's see. Finally, one more. I'll let you look at that. It's a summary of what we've already looked at. Okay. So, he desires all men to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. And now he goes on to explain what this, uh, what this is. All right. Anyone else? have input? Yeah. Yeah. Right Right. And, and then you know one thing that I find interesting in Matthew twenty five for the end, uh, when the Lord speaks about hell, he tells us what hell was beautiful and mm-hmm. it's not for men. Mm-hmm. Right. So God's intent for men is for all to be saved, and he shows that all along. Amen. I, I fully agree. And to minimize that, you know, mm-hmm. to me it's a serious doctrine of error uh, against I, the character of God. I, I agree. I agree, I agree with our high Calvinist friends who go too far. that's a major, it's a major error, I think. It's a selective treatment of the scripture at certain points, so um, there's some mystery in there as far as you know God's sovereign working, but uh, you cannot get away from human responsibility. that's for sure. Yeah, right. yeah, His desire. I mean, second Peter three, he's not willing that any should perish. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. It doesn't make any sense. It, it's a it's a logical contradiction. Yeah, it does. It doesn't make any sense. Yeah, I I agree. Uh, like I say, we'll talk about this quite a bit next week, even. But yeah, you're right. Yeah. Amen. Yeah. <laughs> and I've I've created you with the purpose of destroying you. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I mean that's that's a whole different whole different spirit, whole different sense than than what we're talking about. Yeah, yeah. Really ends up there if you carry that out far enough. Yeah. Okay. Uh let's go to uh verses five and six. Who wants to read that for us? Five and six? Yes, Jeff. For there is one God and one mediator between God and men, but man, Jesus the, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified to suffer. Okay, thank you. I think this uh, when he talks about uh God desires all men to be saved, uh, to come to the knowledge of the truth. This is core, right here. And this is where He goes. Uh, This is the crux of the issue, the heart of the issue. There is one God. There's one true God. And uh, we know that. We go back to the Old Testament here, Deuteronomy 6 4. Uh, You know, this is kind of like Israel will consider this their main statement of faith. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. The confession of faith actually makes way for the doctrine of the Trinity, however, because God here is Elohim, which is plural, and the word one, eod, signifies a compound unity. So there's a number of linguistic uh, things in that verse that actually make way for the Trinity. Of course, the Jews haven't seen that. Uh, they, they, they don't acknowledge that reality. Uh, then as we come to the New Testament... Uh, there is only one God. He's a triune God, consisting of Father, Son, Holy Spirit. That's why we, uh, according to Christ's command, we baptize in the name, singular. Right? We don't say in the names, but in the name, singular, uh, emphasizing God is one. But at the same time, in, in, of the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. So there you have the uh, baptismal formula, which really brings out the idea of one, uh, one God, and yet three persons in, in the Godhead. Okay, there is one God and one mediator. Uh, A mediator is a go-between. A mediator represents both sides. In this case, both God and man. Uh, Jesus is the perfect bridge to life, as we often like to call him. He's the perfect mediator. Expositor says it well. To be of any use, a bridge across a chasm or river must be anchored on both sides, Christ has closed the gap between deity and humanity. He has crossed the Grand Canyon so deep and wide between heaven and earth. He has bridged the chasm that separated man from God. He perp- perfectly represents God. He perfectly represents man. He's able to bring us together in the ransom that he paid. So, yeah. Yeah. Yep. No problem, yeah. Right, we need reconciliation, right? And uh, you need somebody that's able to bring that reconciliation about. Now, Now, God does not... We need to be reconciled to God. God didn't move, right? We moved. So we need to be brought back in right relationship with God. Well, how can you do that? We need a representative who can properly represent us to God, well, we see the wisdom of God in providing His Lamb, the Lord Jesus Christ, uh, that one mediator, uh, one mediator between God and men, and again, He's the perfect mediator representing God, representing men, the God-man, uh, And then, but then it emphasizes the man Christ Jesus, and I think the reason He emphasizes the man Christ Jesus at this point is because He goes on to emphasize Uh, who gave himself a ransom. Uh, It's the the man part that emphasizes his ransom. I I mean, as as a man, he died, right? Uh, As the God-man. But uh, he's already established that he's Lord and God earlier in the the book. And so here he's emphasizing the man, Christ Jesus. Uh, This emphasis is necessary because of what he goes on to share about him being a, a ransom. Now, uh, let's talk for just a moment about uh, this, this concept of one, one mediator. This, this is a really big thing in terms of the true gospel. Uh, note it most carefully that there's only one mediator between God and, and men, and that is Jesus Christ. Church is not the mediator. Angels are not the mediator. Saints are not the mediator. Mary's not the mediator. The pope or priests are not the mediator. Sacraments are not the mediator. Baptism is not the mediator. You're getting the point, right? Right? Uh, The only mediator by which we can have access to God is Jesus. Any other gospel is a false gospel. Any other knowledge is not knowledge of the truth. Uh, The knowledge of the truth, the heart of it is there's one mediator, and that's Jesus Christ. There is no, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except by me. Uh, He alone is uh, the mediator. Okay, uh, any thoughts there before I go on to verse 6? All right, verse 6. Notice what he did as the the one mediator who gave himself a ransom for all to be testified in due time. Now, in these days, when a slave would be uh, bought out of the the slave market, uh, they would talk in terms of him being ransomed. A ransom price was paid to set the slave free. And that's what Jesus did for us. He paid the price to set us free. Uh, What is uh, the wages of sin? Well, it's death. And Christ paid the price to set us free. He paid the ransom price for us. Who gave himself. He is himself the ransom. And we know how he did that. as He went to the cross and died for us. But notice he's a ransom for who? Gave himself a ransom for the elect? Oh, yeah. But beyond that, for all. Right? For all. And so again, we have that that emphasis. Thomas Constable again says, he paid the debt for all. This is proof that he desires all to be saved. Yeah, I think that's consistent, right? I mean, that's true. Amen. Note the emphasis on all throughout this whole section. Uh, Pray for all. God desires all to be saved. Christ gave himself a ransom for all. Uh, I think the same all is all encompassing, right? In, in every situation, all the way through here. Um, I agree with Warren Wearsby here. Uh, well, first we got First John 2 2. He himself is the propitiation for our sins. The satisfaction, satisfactory payment, propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. Well, I don't know how you argue with that verse. Uh, it's so clear. Uh, Warren Wearsby, through the death of Christ, Though the death of Christ is efficient only for those who trust Him, it is sufficient for the sins of the whole world. Um, again, we see that different places. We certainly see it here. And then he says, To be testified in due time. Uh, in the fullness of time, God sent forth His Son, as it says in Galatians 4. It's according to God's timetable. Uh, you know, history is His story. Uh, God's working it out according to his timetable uh, to be testified in due time. And then he says, uh, verse 7, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. Uh, This message of Christ being the one mediator and uh, of him being the ransom for all, he says, I was appointed a preacher. Uh, What is a preacher? What does a preacher do? Yeah, it's to herald, to proclaim uh, he's, so he's a proclaimer of this message. Uh, that's what he does. Uh, and so uh, actually in, in the day, uh, the king would often, if he was going someplace on a visit, would have a, a herald go out before him announcing whatever uh, the king wanted announced and preparing uh, the way. Uh, that's the idea here. Uh, the preacher doesn't come up with the message, by the way. He just delivers it, right? He says, here, here's the message you've been given. Now just give the message. You don't have to come up and say, well, I wonder now, I need a, I need something new. No, you don't. Uh, in fact, if you're giving something new, uh, it's not true. Uh, for which I was appointed a preacher and an apostle. The word apostle literally means sent one. Uh, apostle, as far as the technical use in the New Testament, refers to those uh, authoritative representatives of Jesus Christ. And uh, they, they were appointed by Christ, personally, specifically. Uh, there are no self-appointed, uh, appointed apostles. They were all specifically personally chosen by Jesus Christ to be his special representatives. And then he says, I am speaking the truth in Christ and not lying. This is almost like the form of an oath. And I think Paul is saying this because he has his critics on the scene who are challenging him behind the scenes. And so he is... uh, He is emphatically saying that, uh, you know, in the form of an oath, I'm not lying. I am am speaking the truth in Christ. And then he says, "A teacher of the Gentiles in in faith and truth." Uh, He's not merely a herald, a preacher. He's not just an apostle. He also defines himself as a teacher of the Gentiles one thing to herald. It's another thing to teach, which is to give more explanation and application. He's doing all of these things. And then it's not merely in reference to the Jewish people. Uh, he is the apostle of the, to the Gentiles, right? In particular. And so he says, a teacher of the Gentiles. And this, again, fits with his theme of all people, right? All people. I'm, I have a ministry in relationship to everybody. And then he says, in faith and truth, and, and uh, A couple of slides here. Stephen Cole says, In faith and truth point to two sides of the message. Truth affirms the reliability of the gospel rooted as it is in the historically validated life, death, and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Faith is the means by which a person appropriates the truth. You must personally put your faith in Christ's death on your behalf. And then uh, finally here, uh, Gramacki says, it is the belief of the truth that saves a sinner. Faith is the means, and truth is the content. And uh, so, I think that's that's accurate in terms of what Paul's emphasis is here. Well, uh, when we think about Christ being the one mediator, I love this illustration, uh, and it goes like this: uh, There was the captain of a ship. It was a black night, and all of a sudden, he sees a light ahead of him. Right. And he's on a direct collision course with the light. And so uh, the captain, you know, he's a a captain, and he's somebody. And so he says to the light, uh, change your course 10 degrees east. The light signals back, change yours 10 degrees west. Captain, I'm a Navy captain. Change your course, sir. I'm a seaman, second class. Change your course, sir. The captain was furious. I'm a battleship. I'm not changing my course. One last reply. I'm a lighthouse. Your call. (laughs) Uh, You know, when it comes to the knowledge of the truth, you can align with it or face disaster. Uh, There's no negotiating the knowledge of the truth. The truth of one mediator the truth that He is the ransom uh, for all. The issue becomes, what are we going to do with it? If we accept it, we're saved. And God desires all to be saved, but we have to put our faith in Christ. All right, any thoughts as we wrap up here tonight? Any other thoughts? Okay, very good. Let's go ahead and share some prayer requests. Everybody have a prayer?